if you wanted a sermon on the gospel reading, there's a recording of it um, <laughs> on YouTube. Uh, Dean Richard preached that this morning. I will be talking about the book of Numbers, um, not because I'm avoiding the gospel, but because Numbers is just as rich. And also because it is not often that we hear from the book of Numbers, so when we do, it is worth our attention. The first five books of the, Bi of the Bible, the five books of Moses, or as Jews call it, the Torah, can be characterized as follows. Genesis is about the origins of the world. Exodus is about the origins of the ancient nation of Israel. Leviticus is about the origins of holiness. Deuteronomy is about the origins of the law of God, spoken through Moses, and Numbers. Numbers is about the origins of administration of the people of God. At its simplest and most profound, Numbers addresses the logistics of wilderness wandering. The logistics of wilderness wandering. How do you wander in the wilderness with 600,000 people? Exodus is the collection of stories about the sojourn, sojourn out of Egypt. Leviticus is Israel's priest manual for remaining ritually pure while wandering. Deuteronomy expounds upon how Israel is to be behave once it enters the land of promise. And Numbers is a glimpse into the staging ground for the promised land. It is neither Egypt that place of enslavement and tyranny, nor is it Canaan, that land flowing with milk and honey. Instead, it is the place between, the place between. I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many of you find yourself today in a place between? The tone of this place between is neither pleasant nor soothing. It is the place of nostalgia for what was and desperation over what will be. The riffraff among them had a strong craving, says the narrator. Even the Israelites cried again and said, who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish we ate in Egypt for free, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. Now our lives are wasting away. There is nothing but manna in front of us. Nostalgia here is the enemy of reality. The God who delivered them from enslavement and oppression in a strange and foreign land is the same God sustaining and keeping them in the place between. But they can't appreciate it because their gaze is fixed on a past that never was. Yes, the fish, cucumbers, leeks, melons, onions, and garlic are good. They were good but you were enslaved. 
Yes, the conciliatory necklace is expensive and nice, but the relationship is unhealthy. Yes, the fringe benefits are nice, but that job is eating you alive. Nostalgia is the enemy of reality because it softens the edges of the instruments and people and experiences that stabbed us over and over again and said, well, it really wasn't that bad. No cucumber, melon, or fish, however delectable they might be, is worth enslavement. I can assure you of that. Moses hears the cry of his people, and he gets upset. <laughs> Having fled Pharaoh's palace so many years before, and after living a life of obscurity, herding sheep in Midian with his father-in-law Jethro and his spouse Zipporah, Moses had left one place between for another and had to think to himself, in his weakest moments, or in most honest moments, things were much easier when it was just me and a few sheep. Moses goes before God and says what any honest, exasperated leader, parent, spouse, or friend says when they are faced with incessant whining. Where am I to get all of this meat for all of these people? Is there a King Supers or Whole Foods or Farmer's Market that can supply enough food for 600,000 people in the middle of nowhere? And then there is a breakthrough, a corporate epiphany of sorts. God says the following to a depleted Moses, I have some organizational tips that you might find helpful. Gather before 70 esteemed men, take them to the tent of meeting, and there I will descend and speak to you, placing some of the spirit that is on you and will place it on them so that you don't have to bear this administrative burden alone. So Moses goes out and tells the people what God said to him, assembles the 70 team leaders, and they place themselves around the perimeter of the tent of meeting, that sacred tent. God descends, takes some of the spirit that was on Moses, and imparts it on the 70, and they begin prophesying. But there were really supposed to be 72 men present. But two slept in and caught up on Netflix and remained in the camp, Eldad and Medad. But the spirit imparted on Moses and the 70 did not miss them just because they slept in and watched Netflix. They were possessed by the spirit too. And here come the Facebook comments again. They were not among the registered they weren't at the sacred tent. Moses stopped them. Moses does not stop them. Instead, he says, if only all of God's people were prophets with the Lord placing the spirit 
on them. Moses, having recovered from his own exasperation, was able to see the big picture once again. Neither nostalgia, nor whining, nor complaining, nor exclusivism are adequate substitutes for the living, breathing Spirit of God. We hear this again when a tattletale disciple comes to Jesus and says, we saw someone expelling demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. And Jesus bites back and he says, don't stop him. Whoever is not against us is for us. That does not make a good campaign slogan, does it? Moses and Jesus and other wise people throughout history can appreciate something about God and the divine that is often not easily appreciated. The healing, sustaining love of God cannot be administered or experienced by a single person alone. God's contagious generosity and power is not as concerned with the how of feeding or the who of feeding, healing, and setting people free as it is with making sure that the feeding, healing, and freedom are happening by any means necessary. The details for our purposes tonight are neither here nor there. Amen.